If you have your Bibles, go with me to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. Let's begin. Verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants who was in charge, his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out of her some grain from the bundles and leave it, that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed." So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. 
And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that we'd simply see the glorious picture of the gospel painted for us in these few words. Father, we'd see your great provision for them and for us. Father, give us eyes and hearts to see such a thing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is such an incredible story. I pray that Ruth has been a blessing to you thus far. I want you to remember two things as we get started this morning. Two things. One is that Naomi left God's land to go to Moab. Right? She left full. If you remember back from chapter 1, it says that she left full. She was full of herself, full of her plans, her ideas, her sufficiency. She was full. Naomi came back empty of all these things. Again, just reread chapter 1, particularly the end. Now Ruth, as well, this is the second thing I want you to remember, is that Ruth came to this promised land empty as well. She could have had all the provision, likely, I mean, it's a speculation, but the idea that the text and the author is presenting to us is that she left behind the provision that she could have had and likely would have had if she would have went with Orpah, her sister, back home and remarried. But instead, she chooses faith in God. We even read in this chapter about how Boaz hears about Ruth leaving behind her family and her land to come to a people she does not know and to a God that she has newly became, become dependent upon. So both women are empty. They're empty. That's the picture. When you look at a narrative like this, you have to ask what is happening? What's in their hands? What's not in their hands? What did they have? What did they leave behind? What's their status now? What is the passage telling us? These are all details that are super important. The reality is they both have come back empty. Both women are empty. And I want to start with this question. What is it like to be empty? What's it like for you to be empty? For all of us, it looks like humble dependence. For all of us, it's some measure of that, but what humble dependence in each of our lives looks like is going to be different. For example, the, the rich young ruler, Jesus, told him to go be empty. What it looked like for him to be empty it was to sell all of his riches. For others, selling your riches may not be where your hope lies. So you don't need to be empty of riches in order to be empty in this sense. For some of us, it does. But they're empty. They're humble. They're dependent. They reach out to God. That's what we see Naomi beginning to do, even though, again, as we talked about last week, the line of her repentance is not straight. The path is crooked. And we'll see some more of that as we go along, particularly as we get into chapter 3. You'll see the crookedness of Naomi's walk of repentance. 
But what we see is that they both reach out to God. They both are walking in humble repentance. They know at this point that they need God's mercy. And so they reach out to God. So what does it look like for you to be empty? As I was shepherding one of my sons uh, yesterday, we were dealing with this uh, mommy trying to help him memorize his verse for Sunday morning. I got to get that verse memorized for Sunday morning. There was there was no legalism in his motivation whatsoever. Um, the night before memorizing this, so mommy's trying to help him memorize this verse, and and he's getting mad and and taking it out on mommy because in his mind he has it figured out. And mommy and other people are the ones in his way. So he's literally like with words blaming, oh, you, you messed me up, you messed me up, I can't get this right because you messed me up or you cut me off or you said too much before I could get my words out and practice my memory and so on and so forth. And so we went to the bedroom and had a conversation uh, and some consequence for the way he was speaking to his mother, but here's what we talked about. He was full of himself. He was full of himself. He was full of himself because he believed his path, his way was right. And that the problem was not inside himself, but outside. We, we talked, I don't, I don't know how much of this he grasped, but we talked about how, look, brother, you, you waited until Saturday night to want to memorize this. And of course, that wasn't his fault either. That was other people's faults. Well, you know, we couldn't work on it and I can't read. And Okay, well, that's a legitimate thing. You can't read, so you need help. But the problem was, and what we talked about is, but you think you have it figured out, so therefore you're walking in judgment of your mother right now. You're full of yourself. Your way is the best way. So that was what it looked like for him to be full. And for us, in many ways, that's oftentimes what it looks like for us to be full as well. I was thinking of another example. When it comes to what's it look like to be empty as we think about the idea of community. You see, someone who is empty of themselves, like Naomi and Ruth at this point, Someone who is empty of themselves when it comes to community won't put up walls around them built out of their own laws that keep people out. You see, someone who puts up these walls built out of their laws is someone that's full of themselves. My way is the way. My path is the path. You come to me on my terms in the ways I make right for you. Listen, there's a difference between being a critical thinker of those around you and being full of ourselves. But maybe, if I could take this example and give a a different spin on it, 
our being full of ourselves looks like, our dreams and aspirations that are not necessarily wrong, but that keep us from faithful dependence on the people of God. So I'm full of these things over here that, again, are not necessarily evil, but they keep me from being empty and filled in the way that I should be filled. Again, this is someone full of their own sufficiency, their own plans, their own agenda, their own items. Again, they can be good things, but not someone trusting in God. So let me ask the question again. In what ways are you full of yourself? When we look at these two ladies, they come back empty. They come home trusting God. They come home humble and dependent. Naomi even prays at this point. She, she prays that God's blessing would be upon Ruth and, and upon herself. She recognizes that she needs the mercy and the provision of God. She sees this. And so they come home empty and this is where we find them in chapter 2. Ruth is ultimately, I don't know if you've figured this out yet or not, but Ruth is ultimately not about Ruth. It's funny, I was in a conversation with someone, and I said, we're, we're, re, we're working through the book of Naomi. And, and I had to correct myself. Well, it's, not, it's not the book of Naomi either. It's not the book about Naomi. It's not a book about Ruth. It's ultimately a book about the covenant-keeping God. It's a book about the great covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord, our God. And particularly, particularly this, the way in which He brings us to faith. The way He rescues His people. The book of Ruth is about this. The first thing I want you to see as we walk into this is that God makes full those who are empty. God makes full those who are empty. Watch what happens. If you get your Bibles, follow along with me in chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read a little bit, commentate, or give a couple comments and read and comment. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now first, Boaz here, notice what's happening. Boaz is going to provide for her physical needs as well as Naomi's. But if you look at the provision of the law, which we'll get to again, the provision of the law is limited to just all that the field keeper had to do was leave the crumbs there. Leave a portion there. That was it. That was his responsibility. But what do we see Boaz doing? Boaz is going way beyond the law's responsibility. So he's not just keeping the law. He's actually showing us the heart of the law. What happens here is it's hinting. The author wants us to see him hinting at a deeper, more lasting supply of love that Boaz has for Ruth. 
It's more than provision of food. It's protection and rescue. It's more than a provision of food. It's protection and rescue. The author wants us to see there's something more happening here. Skip forward to verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, or to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine so that she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles of her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Here's what I want you to see. Bread, wine, roasted grain, protection, provision, all these things given to Ruth from the hand of Boaz. The author is doing, us two, doing two things here that we cannot miss. You'll miss the point of this entire book. One is that God is showing us incredible provision for Ruth. That God is caring for her physical needs as well as Naomi's. But the second thing that the author is doing at this point is the author wants us to wonder this question, to contemplate this question. Is there a romance beginning to grow between Ruth and Boaz? Is there something more? Is there a love from Boaz to Ruth that's more than just this physical provisionary love? Is there something more? Go on with me to verse 17 and 18. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, there we go, ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Picture this, picture this. Abundant supply that came from Boaz's field. Ruth goes home with the leftovers from her lunch and what would have been approximately 30 pounds of threshed barley. That's a lot, particularly for two ladies. Ruth goes home with leftovers and, and 30 pounds. The picture you need to see is this. Okay, everybody, look, look. I know you like to take notes, many of you, but look at me. That morning... Ruth left the bare cupboards in the home of her Jewish mother-in-law's house as a Moabite woman. Do you hear me? Ruth left the bare cupboards of her Jewish mother-in-law's house as a Moabite woman. Now, only hours later, she staggers home with 30 pounds of grain over her shoulders. And Naomi says, where did you work? 
where did you go today? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Bear coverts, a Gentile, empty hands, not welcome in the temple. When you, when, you, when you read and you listen, you interpret Hebrew narratives, Hebrew stories, they're developed primarily through dialogue. And listen what Naomi says once again. Where did you work? Where did you go today? Blessed be the man who did what? Took notice of you. A Moabite, Gentile, empty-handed, broken woman. Keep, keep that picture up here. You should keep that picture up here always. But for now, keep it here. Here's the theme. Naomi left full, but returned empty. To the land of promise, she returned empty. She was emptied because of her sin. She was emptied of her spirit of self-reliance. God's purpose was that Naomi might be filled with the provision from his hands that was hidden within his divine plan. Now Ruth left that morning with empty hands and has returned full. God is saying to us this. Let me quote. Do you see what I do with my children when they trust me, when, like Ruth, they have said to me, you are my God and your people will be my people. You see how God treats his people. And I quote, I send the full away empty, but those who are empty I will give good things. Ruth and Naomi are empty, and you see them walk back full. So let me ask this question in thinking in terms of application. How is it that we remain full apart from God in two different ways? One as sinners, and the next as sufferers. How do we remain full apart from God? I mean, we sin seeking our filling elsewhere. Some examples. When we say life is glorious, life is full, when I can keep life as stress-free as possible. Or another example. Life feels right. It feels full. It feels glorious. When the people around me approve of me. Just a couple examples of an infinite opportunities. And when these things are desired more than the promises of God, we neglect the things of God. And we take things into our own hands and we remain full apart from God 
in our sinfulness. But the other question I want to ask is, how is it that we remain full, or we remain, yes, full as sufferers? Meaning, suffering at the hands of the sins of other people. At the mercy of someone else's sin, it's easy for us to just trudge along, right? I mean, I'm not the only one that's been there, right? Suffering because of the sin of someone else, and we just trudge along under the pervading weight of brokenness, looking for respite on our own apart from God. We'll take things into our own hands, trying to fill ourselves, trying to make things work on our own. And so we trudge along as sufferers who in many ways end up sinning just like Naomi did as we seek to remedy the situation by going to our own sort of Moab and our own self-sufficiency, our own abilities. So how is it we remain full apart from God as sinners? How is it we remain full apart from God as sufferers? But what we learn is that God turns away those who are full, right? But He fills those who are empty. Again, what happens to the rich young ruler? His hands were still full. And it wasn't that he had, it wasn't that his money in and of itself, the fact that he had money, meant that he couldn't follow Jesus. The problem was that his hope was in the money. He was full of his self sufficiency that was uh, exemplified or fruited in the, the wealth that he had. And so Jesus says, Go empty your hands of your own self sufficiency and come follow me. You see, Ruth left behind everything. Literally, she left behind her idolatry. When we think about Ruth leaving Moab, Ruth left her gods. Like the rich young ruler, his god was his sufficiency and his wealth. Jesus says to leave that behind, forsake that. Ruth is leaving behind her gods. She left behind her influence in Moab. She left behind the comfort of her home. Our gods often take on those names. Now listen, she could have justified going back home like you and I try to do. Well, the best stewardship for the care of my family is that I go back to Moab and I give them a life. I give, give them a chance. I have a chance at having children and, and this is the best place. This is, it's the best that I can give my kids. It's best that I give them these certain experiences and circumstances. It's best that I have this type of job. You know, so that I can give more money. But she left it all saying, your God shall be my God. And what happened to Ruth? (laughs) She came home staggering under the weight of God's blessing and provision. She came back overfilled. That's the point. It's when he says that she ate till she was satisfied. Then she had some left over. And then on top of that, she got 30 pounds to take home to Naomi. The point of the story is that she walks away with more than she can handle. That's why Paul says this immeasurable riches of his grace will be showered upon us for how long? Eternity. 
right? Because you and I can't carry it all at once. The great reversal of Ruth's life has begun. Again, you see, God's not just, and here's the point, God's not just supplying Ruth's food for a day or even tomorrow or this year. God is rescuing Ruth's soul. That is why you see Boaz take greater interest in Ruth. That's the picture. God is showing us that he cares for more than their livelihood on earth. God cares for her soul. There is something deeper going on. It's why you see the the narrator in the, the story showing us Boaz's interest. He took a special look at you, Ruth. God has covenantal love for Ruth and Naomi, and God has committed himself to care for Ruth and Naomi, motivated by his love for them. I mean, we see allusions to this idea of full and empty when we think about pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is not just an Old Testament thought. I send the full away empty, but those who are empty I will make full. So again, you need to ask this question this week. In what ways am I full apart from God? I guarantee you two things. One, you fill that stock house or that barn as much and as often as you can. Why? Because it can never be full enough to satisfy your longing soul. And so I just go back to that. I keep going back to that. I got to scheme ways to fill my stockpile of fullness in this area. You'd ask that question, where do I go to fill? Where am I full away and apart from God? Now, let's move on. Naomi knows that blessing is the expression of God's covenantal goodness to those who trust and obey Him. Right? Naomi knows this. This, is, this would not have been a surprise to her. But look at what Naomi says in verse 19, of the second part through 20. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked and, and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Those are key words. Again, dialogue. What's being said in the dialogue? Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our, what? Redeemers. The Lord has shown incredible love towards these ladies through Boaz. Then Naomi adds something that we already know, but Ruth does not know at this point. She says, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. See, Naomi names what's happening in the passage. Follow me. This man, because of God's provision, is going to save us from our desperate situation. I mean, stop with me for just a second. Who else is in a desperate situation? 
all of us, right? It's a picture. But notice the physical provision. God wrote a provision. If you want to go read in Deuteronomy and such, God wrote provision in the law that required the male relative, especially a brother-in-law, to care for the widow if his bloodline and her children. I'm going to introduce a word here, and we're going to work it out particularly next week. I'm going to introduce a word here. The word is hesed. It's a Hebrew word. It's around 250 times in the Old Testament and primarily given in reference to God himself. Listen, when God revealed himself to Moses, he said that he was a God full of hesed. What is hesed? It's not simple love. It's not simply love. It's not simply kindness. Let me quote. It means God's deep goodness expressed in his covenant commitment, his absolute loyalty, his obligating of himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised, whatever it may cost him personally to do it. That's Hesed. To say Hesed love, as I've heard some people say, is redundant and I don't think helpful. You just need to say Hesed. What is Hesed? It's God's loving kindness. Or as, as uh, Sproul said, it's God's loyal love. Not just love, not just loyalty, not just kindness, not just love, loving kindness, loyal love. He is the God of unceasing kindness because of his loyal love. Again, let me read this quote to you again. It means God's deep goodness expressed in his covenant commitment, his absolute loyalty. Do you hear that? Absolute loyalty. You and I, this side of heaven, know nothing of absolute loyalty apart from God's promise and declaration concerning himself. We can have tastes of it here. And those tastes are sweet and encouraging, but they ultimately point to his absolute loyalty this obligating of himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised, whatever it may cost him personally to do it. Listen, this idea here forms the central theme in the book of Ruth. God's unceasing kindness born out of his loyal love, his hesed for his people. You see, God's loyal love is displayed in His unceasing kindness towards His Son's bride. God's loyal love is displayed in His unceasing kindness towards His Son's bride. Go to Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find 
favor. Now hang with me for just a second. Let's look at this gleaning thing very quickly. God made a law about gleaning, just like He made provision for the brother-in-law and such to care for the family. I don't think it was limited to the brother-in-law, but I mean, we see that in this case, particularly with Boaz. He's not a brother-in-law. But He also made a law about gleaning. It was an expression, here's what you need to understand. Man, we misread the law so much. It was an expression of God's love and concern for the poor, the stranger, and the marginalized. The law about gleaning was a command for all of His people to share. And here's what the law of gleaning, just very briefly. Those who had farms were told, particularly fields, were told not to harvest their fields all the way. They were not to pick it bone dry, if you will. They were to leave a border around each field where the poor and the needy and the marginalized could come glean for themselves. Read a passage like Leviticus 19. That way the poor would be taken care of. This was a law of grace. Yes, grace seen in God's law. You see God's loyal love written into His law. So keep in mind this idea of gleaning. Now the last word in chapter 2, is, or in verse 2 rather, is quite significant. It's the word hesed. Again, it emphasizes God's grace, His kindness, His covenant favor, His faithful love. Now, I want you to look what happens in the text. The author is going to draw our attention to something spectacular. Verse 3. So Ruth, or so she, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And listen to this. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan Elimelech. Now, if, 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 I don't know if you think about these things as you're reading a book like this, but the book is written down afterwards. This isn't the account like a journal as it's happening. This is an author writing about the event after the event has been done. And listen to what she says. And she goes to glean and literally means just so happens to find herself gleaning in a field belonging to Boaz, a member of her deceased father-in-law's family. She just so happens. Yes, from our perspective, we live so often as though things just seem to happen. But again, remember, the author of the story knows the end. The author of the story clearly, and many other examples in this passage where we see he understands God's sovereignty over this. The author's point is to draw out the reality that it isn't by chance at all. It was God's sovereign plan the whole time that she would be gleaning in Boaz's field where then Boaz would take notice of her. Listen, God's unceasing kindness is never by chance, but always by decree. 
God, let me say it again. I, I, don't, I, I know most of us in this room do not live as though we believe this each day. God's unceasing kindness is never by chance. It's always by his decree. You never happen to stumble upon God's provision. You never happen to stumble upon the, the, the mending of your marriage. You never happen to stumble upon that person who rebukes your sin. You never happen to stumble upon any of these things. It's always by God's unceasing kindness decreed in eternity past. How often do you chalk God's unceasing kindness up to something as simple as a happenstance? How often do you, in the midst of struggle, suffering, etc., just happen to stumble upon God's provision? Or because you don't believe that God has loyal love for His children, you don't look for His unceasing kindness in the middle of your terrible circumstances. Like, listen, child of God, like, in the middle of struggle, suffering, life is hard. I'm feeling the weight of the brokenness of my own heart and the brokenness and sin of those around me. If I believe that God has decreed unceasing kindness for me, his child, then I should open my eyes and look for it. Where is it at? Where is it at? I know it's there. I just got eyes that are too blind to see it. Where is it? Don't you see God's sovereign, sovereignly decreed hesed for Ruth and Naomi? How often do we miss God's loyal love towards us because we're too busy going to Moab to get our own version of loyal love? Instead of waiting on the Lord, we've got to take matters into our own hands. Again, it's not by happenstance that she ends up in Boaz's field. This was God's ordained plan all along. Just as the prodigal son, the party at the son's return was God's plan all along. His father didn't just happen to welcome him back home. He didn't just happen to slaughter the fattened calf. That was his plan all along. But let's not stop there. Look at verse four. Again, pay attention to these words. And behold, Boaz came from where? Any of this ringing a bell? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, and the Lord bless you. The author says, listen, and now Boaz arrives. Listen, I'm not trying to pick on translations here, but the ESV and the NASB, NASB capture the Hebrew well here when they say, and behold, and behold, 
Here's what the author is saying. Naomi and Ruth have been on this journey of repentance. Their lines haven't been straight, but God's love for them has been unwavering. And now, in the midst of their emptiness, in the midst of their destitute status, in the midst of their helplessness and their humility, the author is saying this, listen to me church, look, fix your eyes, pay attention, let this capture your gaze. Boaz is now here, and he has come and the city of bread that will feed your soul. Boaz is here. Your Savior is here. This is no coincidence. This is not happenstance. Behold, reader, the Savior has arrived. Read verse 20 with me. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, our, one of our redeemers. When Naomi says that Boaz has not abandoned Hesed, covenant loyalty, God's loyal love, that's what she's saying. He has not abandoned this. He's not abandoned his through and through goodness. When Naomi says that here, that's what she means, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. His through and through goodness, his loyal love. It's as though the narrator is saying to us, stop. Stop here and think about that. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Listen, God's unceasing kindness is not dependent on our faithfulness, ultimately, but on his mercy. Don't you see that these events demonstrate the Heavenly Father's steadfast love and kindness as He works in the lives of His children? Listen, even the emptying of Naomi and the emptying of Ruth was God's plan. He purposed for that to happen. He brought it to fruition. And then He brings them back and sovereignly fills them up. Don't you see God's unwavering kindness on his people in the midst of their wavering faithfulness and wavering obedience? Don't you see that in the midst of their mixed obedience and disobedience that God sends a redeemer to rescue them, to lift them up out of their helpless state? It's the picture of the gospel right here in the middle of the Old Testament. Here's what's happening. Naomi who had earlier accused God of treating her poorly, right? She comes back empty. She's back in the land empty, but what does she do? She accuses God of treating her poorly. Now she sees the gracious hand of God in Ruth's, quote, chance encounter with Boaz that day. 
But notice this, Yahweh's goodness came, though, through what? Through a member of the covenant community. Through a member of God's covenant people. God's mercy has a human face. Boaz was more than a kind and gentle do-gooder. His first words demonstrate his devotion to Israel's covenant God. Chapter 2, verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. Those are the words of a covenant person of God. His actions must be understood then in view of covenantal grace. Because God had dealt graciously with Boaz, he is treating others graciously. Boaz, again, is more than a kind and gentle do-gooder. But he is the face of God's mercy to these ladies. Listen, God's mercy has a face, right? And what's his name? It's Jesus. God's mercy has a face. His name is Jesus. Mercy, though, listen to me, mercy is an indictment as well. It says that we are full of ourselves and empty of God. Mercy says that God has something that we need. Mercy says that we, just like Naomi, head on to Moab and get our fix to, to secure things that, that are good, but, but we go about it the wrong way. And mercy says that we sit in the kitchen of our hearts, destitute and empty, because of our own sin and the sin of others. But mercy also says, I am Jesus. And I will rescue you. I'm here to rescue you. In Jesus, listen, church, we see just how far God is willing to go to reclaim and restore his people. Jesus provided generous amounts of food for hungry people. He fed 5,000 people until they were satisfied and had some left over. He gave water to the woman at the well. Living water. Just like Boaz, Jesus provides generous amounts of food, but unlike Boaz, Jesus offered his own flesh and blood as spiritual food and drink to spiritually starving sinners. He, Jesus, absorbed in his body the penalty due us and so reconciled us to God whom our sins have offended. Through Jesus Christ, God has blessed us not momentarily with food, but eternally with himself. Listen, God's mercy has a face. 
His name is Jesus. He emptied, listen, Jesus emptied himself so that he could take upon himself the full measure of our sins to absorb the full measure of God's wrath upon those sins in order that we might be emptied of our sins and then be filled with his righteousness. He was emptied so that we could be made full. Don't you see God's unceasing kindness to us? And look what God's mercy shown through Boaz does to Naomi. In this verse we just read, in verse 4, she believes they will be saved. So what happens first, right? The mercy of God is shown to Naomi once again. Right? When she's in the fields in Moab, or she hears about God's mercy back in Judah, so they leave and start this walk of repentance. Now she's sitting in her home while Ruth's out, gaining, out gleaning, and, and she sits at home, and what's she hear about? God's mercy through Boaz. And what does she say? This man is one of our redeemers. She believes that God will deliver them. God's unceasing kindness through Boaz is working faith in Naomi. It's drawing her out of herself. Saying, look, Naomi, I, your God, am here to care for you and rescue you. She believes. Church, would you see, ask God to give you eyes to see the unceasing kindness of God to us sinners in desperate need of rescue. Church, he is committed to his people. God has loyal love toward his people. He will ultimately rescue you from any and all hurt someday. His unceasing kindness sent his son to the cross for you and for me. And his unceasing kindness accepted his son's sacrifice for you and for me and raised him from the grave. Church, is it hard sometimes to see that God has good intentions for his people? That he has good intentions for you and that those intentions will happen? He's not just hopeful. But he has good plans for you. He has good plans for me. His unceasing kindness directs his sovereign hand. His Listen, we are called in this passage to turn from the things that we hope in, the things that we, war, we long for, the things that we worship instead of God and taking things into our own hands. And, for he loves us with unceasing kindness. We come to him empty, empty of false hope, 
empty of our righteousness. And he fills us with hope and fills us with the righteousness of his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I know in my own heart I struggle so often to see that you have nothing but unceasing kindness for me. The wrath due to me was already taken from me. It's gone. There is no wrath from your hands due to me. The only thing left in your hands for me is your unceasing kindness. Sometimes that kindness looks like pain, feels like pain, and is indeed painful. Sometimes your unceasing kindness is, is the kind that hurts because it shows us the emptiness of Moab. And it leads us back to you, empty, ready to be filled from your hands. Father, I pray that today that we would grow in knowing your unceasing kindness for your people. And Father, if there's anyone in here that does not know this unceasing kindness, Father, that you would draw their hearts up out of the pit of sin that they are wallowing in. Lead their hearts to repentance. Lead their hearts to faith that there is mercy for them at the cross. Mercy found in the Son who died for their sins. May we all believe this more greatly, more thoroughly today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of the gospel hidden deep within the Old Testament. Father, thank you for that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.